0: And tonight we're going to be in a passage out of Luke, and it's going to be a little redundant if you were with us last week because the uh, lectionary passages basically just go to two different gospel accounts of Jesus appearing to his disciples um, post-resurrection when they still don't know what's happening. And so we talked through John's last week, uh, and this week we're in Luke. And so let me read the passage to you, and then... Um, we're going to talk through it. We'll, we'll unpack a couple, some lessons to be found here, but there's kind of one thing in particular that really uh, I got hung up on this week that we'll end up talking about mostly, but let's go ahead and read it. We're Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 48, and it says this. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, "'Peace be with you.' They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost." He said to them, why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your heart? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I, myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. I love that sentence. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. He said to them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, And that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. There's a lot of things we can learn about this from this passage, but the one thing kind of stuck out at me is is based on a situation I had not too long ago. Now, now I'm not sure if this probably works for everyone in this room, for whatever your area is, whatever you uh, are most passionate about or whatever you study most is what haunts you, right? Right? And by that I mean if you've put a lot of time and energy and maybe countless hours studying a particular subject, you will find violations of that subject everywhere you look because you're in in tune with it, right? Um, We've got some English professors here. I imagine for English professors, uh, the whole world is full of rogue Oxford commas and participles that dangle in the breeze for no good reason. I would never let you read anything I write for that purpose right if you're a doctor you probably cringe on a daily basis for what passes as scientific facts among your patients that they bring to you and inform you of because they went on the internet so they know right uh, we have uh, Steve is a landscape architect he probably drives all over town right near right now and sees the completely pointless uh, destruction of crape myrtles that people call trimming in this town right and it probably hurts him to his core if you're a graphic designer, you see really bad templates and terrible fonts all mixed together and it drives you insane, right? Whatever you are most passionate about, whatever you study the most haunts you for those reasons. I'm haunted by what I feel like is destructive or bad theology. Uh, when I hear things spouted off about God um, that I think is really bad. Bad, and I can't understand why someone would think that. It's really hard for me to sit on my hands and not say anything, right? It, and it happens constantly to me. Now, I'm not claiming to have all the theological answers. I'm not even to, uh, claiming to be a good theologian. I spend a lot of time with a lot of people who know a lot more about it than I do, and they're probably right when we disagree. But I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about it, and it means something to me, and so it, it happens all the time, I feel like. There are these certain commonly held beliefs that to me just don't hold up, but they're widely accepted. And what drives me nuts is when someone says them in a crowd like, we all know this, and inside I'm like, no, we don't, right? And I want to hold court and try and set everyone right because that's what all of us arrogant knowers of all things want to do. I spend, I spend uh, uh, one day a week uh, in, a, in a neighboring town uh, for part of my work uh, during the week, and I'm building relationships there, so I, I joined a civic club. And so once a week I go and I have lunch in this Civic Club. And uh, it's, a, it's full of nice, it's, it's a good old boys club, but it's full of really nice folks. And, and I, I'm really enjoying it. I've been there for a year and a half. I'm getting to know people. But there's a lot of just kind of table talk. You sit around the table and everything has been covered at some point. And uh, as much as I like the people in the room, I have come to realize there's a lot we don't have in common, right? And so there's plenty of times when I'm trying to make that decision. You know, is, is, is saying something right now going to create heat or light uh, or neither, And uh, sometimes it's a hard decision to make. But recently, uh, a conversation came up that uh, sent me over the edge. And it was uh, people uh, talking about, basically about retaliation. I think it came up when someone said, you know, well, someone, you know, some kid at at my son's school was making fun of him. And so I just told him, you just got to walk right up to him and punch him in the face as hard as you can. Because once you punch a bully in the face, he'll leave you alone. Am I right, guys? And I was like, "Uh," you know. And then another guy across the way said, yeah, I get it. He said, but you know, didn't Jesus say to turn the other cheek? And I went, all right, here we go. Like someone, and and the guy, and and then the response was, he didn't mean that. And then he said, look, you may not have read your Bible, but I read mine. And I know some crazy things happened before Jesus. And then Jesus came talking all that peace and love and turn the other cheek stuff. And then if you read the end of the Bible, you realize when he comes back, uh, it's going to be a whole different ballgame. And then everyone went, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. And I um, just died a little bit on the inside. <laughs> like, I disagree with every part of what that guy said. And everyone else was, like, nodding along and saying, yeah, it makes sense. And I, I couldn't disagree more with everything he said. I, I don't think, I mean, he, he said, you know, well, I know when Jesus was here, he was just kind of passive and stuff. I don't think Jesus was passive at all. He was nonviolent, but he certainly wasn't passive um, I, I, don't think Jesus, uh, I don't think that God was one way and then was a different way in the form of Jesus and then is going to be a different way again later on. I don't think that a good interpretation of Revelation results in Jesus being some kind of hyper-masculine Rambo figure that comes in at the end of times and settles everyone's hash. That's a, that's a bad theology, right? Uh, in fact, you've got to really—I know it, there's a lot of crazy stuff in Revelation, a lot of symbolic, weird stuff, but Jesus is a lamb, uh, in, in there and, and yeah he's covered in blood but it's his own blood and the only sword he has is coming out of his mouth which is a terrible way to kill other people and therefore maybe symbolic of something else right it's, it's just bad theology and, and and I was just sitting there um, and, I, and I was trying to figure out how do I get into this right now uh, and still get out of here alive right because I believe in turning the cheek but none of these guys do and that doesn't stand well for me if I get into it with them But the truth is, this gets at something that is really difficult about Scripture that I understand, and I struggle with too. One of the most deeply difficult parts of Scripture, if you've taken it seriously, if you've really read through the Bible, is that we all struggle with some level, with this image that God seems to have some different personalities, right? I mean, there's some stuff in the Old Testament that is R-rated, um, there's a website uh, out there I think it's called The Block Bible which is someone who's taken still shots of the Bible using Lego characters uh, and it's really cute except they do even the really morbid disturbing stories from the Old Testament and I encourage you to go and look at it maybe not with kids although it looks like it's for kids because there's, there's some things you're like Ugh, that looks weird with Lego people doing it but you realize it's, there's some hairy stuff that goes on in the Old Testament right? And then you have Jesus, and then of course you have Revelation, and all these kind of things. And there's this sense that, is God changing who God is? Is God changing the way God acts? Is God sometimes loving and sometimes not? And what does that look like? Sometimes violent, sometimes not. What do we do with all of that? And I believe to one extent, that's one of the things that Jesus addresses here in a roundabout way. Now the scripture that we just read, there's so much we can glean from that scripture. We can see in that scripture that Christ comes to bring peace to those who are frightened and rattled by death run amuck in this world. And that's an important thing to remember because I don't know about you, but I experienced some church that was far, it was far from peaceful. And so it's good to know that if it's not bringing about peace, if it's not making peace in this world, it's really not of God, right? And we we can see that from the way God approaches and how he settles them when he gets there. We see a Jesus who is intent on demonstrating that resurrection, honestly, is a physical reality. He makes a real point of saying that here. Like, look at my hands and my feet and my bones. Let me eat some fish in front of you, which is a weird thing to do. But he's making a point that this is not some kind of weird ethereal apparition. Like, I'm here. I was dead, and now I am not. And uh, most of us grew up in situations where we, ca- we kind of talked about resurrection and we really just kind of meant somewhere in the air, our spirits are kind of floating around. That's really not orthodox Christianity. All the creeds and everything talk about physical resurrection, that God is really going to redeem us, right? There's still kind of, now maybe different. Maybe we can walk through walls like Jesus did or something. I don't know. But there's still this kind of physical nature to it. That's, that's very poignant in here. As we talked about last week, we see that the sharing of scars is fundamental to the faith community. Right, the way Jesus brings hope and 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 faith to the these are scared these these guys are locked in a room. They've run away. They spent the years of their life dedicated to something that fell apart in front of their eyes, and they are scared for their own lives and for what they've wasted their lives on. And one of the ways that Jesus brings them back is to show his scars. Right, and we talked about you last week. We, you know a God by by the scars. Right. And the idea that we sometimes are tempted to hide our scars from each other, to act like we've got it all together, to come and play church and act like everything's okay, when in fact what we most need is to understand each other's wounds and each other's scars because faith is found in that as a community. We see that faith can exist with every kind of feeling. I love that one sentence again where it says that they're feeling joy, wonder, and disbelief all at the same time. Right? That's, that, sounds, that sounds about right to me. And then we also see that central to life with Christ is the sharing of the table, c- communion with those who are hungry and thirsty. I mean, the last time Jesus met with them, he was breaking bread and he was giving it to them. And then when he comes back in the room, he's asking them for food. He's kind of passing that baton on to them. All of these things are true and beautiful and important and are their own sermons in their own right. But for me this week, what really seemed like the most poignant thing I could grab from this story was the fact that what Jesus says here indicates that it has always been about those things. A God who is vulnerable and shows his scars, a God who suffers and dies and doesn't kill, a God who is nonviolent and turns the other cheek, all those things, it's always been about those things. Right? Because here you have a group of disciples whose heads are spinning. They're experiencing all this beautiful stuff in front of them, right? They're so, they're so happy but also disbelieving and not sure what to make of it. All these wonderful things are happening in front of them, but the problem is none of it agrees with their theology. It's hard to make sense of what Jesus has done and is doing in front of them based on what they've been taught about who God is and what God wants. I mean, you you see that they struggled with it the entire time, Right? Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter says, no, you're not. Right? That's, when Jesus, that's where Peter goes from being the rock to Satan in like four verses, which is a, a bad swing you don't want to make with Jesus. And even up to the very end, they're pulling swords and whacking ears off because they think they're supposed to fight, right? They have this major problem that nothing that Jesus is doing is fitting into their understanding or interpretation of Scripture and their understanding of their own religious history. And then it says, Jesus brought new light to Scripture. He opens their hearts. Not because Jesus is some new tactic that God is trying. I was violent, but now I'm going to try being nice for all. But don't worry, I'll be violent again later on. No, Jesus is the interpretive lens by which everything else is understood. Right? He said to them, verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the laws of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What was resurrected and living before them cast new light on the scriptures. They interpreted it a new way. They finally understood what it really meant. This is an acting out of what Jesus had said earlier to his followers, which is I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. The hungry, scarred, vulnerable, resurrected Christ opened their minds to understand that all of Scripture has always been about these things. It's always been about a God who will suffer for the beloved. It's always been about a God who would rather um, spill God's own blood than shed another's. It's always been about a God who conquers death by going through it and forms community, forms a community of people who are willing to do the same. This has always been what it was about. And we struggle with this truth as much as the disciples did, right? Over and over again, those with Jesus could not understand how this could be true. All they'd been taught, the way they understood Scripture and their own religious history was very different from the way Jesus was behaving. This is why Jesus got in so much trouble. Right. Obviously, Scripture taught them triumphalism. Obviously, Scripture taught them that God was on their side and that they were supposed to one day be the ones in charge and one day overthrow those who were um, you know, stealing from them or, or taxing them or oppressing them. They believed that God was there to vanquish their enemies, not love them. They believed an eye for an eye was a dictate from God to retaliate. As opposed to what I believe it was, which is an attempt of God to restrict what is normally unlimited vengeance that people take out on each other. They believed in a kingdom of armies and swords, not wash basins and towels. And they didn't get there out of thin air. They believed it because it was a common sense and because that's, how their scriptures, it's, that's what their scriptures seemed to be saying to them and what they had been taught about them. Again, literally until the moment that Jesus was taken, they were still holding on to that image. It's why they're so confused and so lost and so scared in this moment. They're constantly trying to figure out how to fit Jesus into their way of looking at the world and religion and faith, which is exactly backwards of what we were asked to do as disciples. Jesus doesn't fit into the way we see things. We're supposed to bend how we see things towards Jesus, right? Because Jesus claims lordship over the interpretation, over our religious history of Scripture. In, in, In the Gospels, he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Yeah, Jesus, we have heard that. It's in the Bible. We've all heard it. We know that is true. We know what that means. And Jesus says, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, Turn the other cheek. Right? Jesus is doing more than just making a claim of nonviolence here. Jesus is presuming to be the means by which everything else is interpreted. Jesus is claiming to be Messiah here. In other words, Jesus is saying that it has always been about Him, that God is not changing plans and adjusting natures along the way. If your understanding of truth and goodness and religion and God does not resemble Jesus, the problem is not with Jesus, it's with your understanding. God always has and always will look like Christ. We learn that in Colossians. He is the fullness of God. There is no more of God than there is that we find in Jesus. It has always been about these same truths. God has always been a God of sacrificial love and unending grace. God has always sought to build a beloved community rooted in that nature. And like the disciples in this story... That community has always been full of fear and wonder and disbelief and doubt and joy and God still used them. That community has always tried to find ways to act on their most destructive impulses and blame God for it. But God is who God is. It was always intended to be a vulnerable family that shows its scars. It was always intended to be a family that lays its life down for its friend. It was always intended to be a place of communion and sharing so that all might be well-fed and deeply loved. That's always been what it's about. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. And certainly there are parts of, you know, you get into some of the wars in the Old Testament and stuff, and it's it's hard to make sense of it. I picked up two books not too long ago where someone a theologian who's way smarter than me spent 1,800 pages trying to reconcile all these things. It's way above my head. I'm not here to try and answer all those questions for you. But this is the claim that Jesus makes that this always has been and always will be who God is and what God is about. And we should hold firm to that. And that is good news. That is why we get together every week. That is why we sing. That is why we share. That is why we give sacrificially. It's why we serve in the community. It's why we immerse ourselves in a new kind of kingdom. Because that's who God is, and that's who God has always been. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to go outside, and we're going to celebrate someone who publicly commits to following the God who loves Someone who publicly confesses to the idea that this is who God is and so this is who I'm going to try to be. And that's a beautiful thing. Because in a world that is as difficult and deathly as our world can be, we need to be reminded that true life and love is found in this beloved community. We need to be reminded that God always has and always will look like Jesus. And that doesn't make our lives easy but that is very good news. Let's pray. God we confess that when we begin to uh, plumb the depths of our own scripture, when we begin to read uh, the stories of our religious history, when we begin to Listen to sermons and listen to teachers. It can get very confusing very quick. Lord, we confess that uh, as people we have done many things that do not look anything like you and somehow tried to attach your name to it. God, we confess that we get this wrong a lot. we ask that you would help to open us up to the good news that this is. That you are not a God who has changed nature or changed tactics. You are not a God who is sometimes violent and sometimes nice. It just depends on what day we catch you. That the person of Jesus, the God incarnate with flesh and blood dwelling among us, Suffering as we suffer, bleeding as we bleed, dying as we will die, and rising again from the dead. That that Jesus is the fullness of God. That if we look intently on that scarred and hungry God who vulnerably vulnerably laid down his own life for us, that by that light we might see who you truly are. Lord, may we not be fooled by cheap imitations. May we not buy into all the world's idols that have your name on them. Thank you for this good news. You are now and have always been pure, unconditional, unending love. We love you and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.
1: as i went down to the river to pray studying about that good old way and who shall wear the starry crown good lord show me the way oh brothers let's go down let's go down come on down oh brothers let's go down down in the river to pray oh sinners let's go down let's go down don't you want to go down oh sinners let's go down down in the river to pray